Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. As you can hear, my voice isn't filled with excitement because we're going to be doing a very difficult, very important topic today because we will be talking about the Holocaust as it is Holocaust Memorial Day tomorrow. So with me, I have Waitman Bourne, who is a historian of the Holocaust at Northumbria University. He's also an author, and his new book is going to be out in June. It's June, right? Correct? June-ish, yeah, the summer. June-ish this summer, which is going to be on, uh, well, you can guess it's going to be on the Holocaust. But the book is titled Between the Wires, uh, the Anoska Camp and uh, Lviv. And we'll be talking about that when the book actually comes out. So we'll get to that. But hi, Waitman. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Super excited. This is really interesting because I think we're going to be talking off people's ears at this point when (laughs) when it comes down to this topic. But tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day. It's oddly placed on the liberation of Auschwitz, which we'll talk about as well a little bit uh, between the two of us. But why is Holocaust Memorial Day so important, especially now in this modern day context? The obvious and sort of trite answer, you know, is the never again piece, you know, that, um, you know, it reminds us that uh, of genocide and and that it's terrible and that we shouldn't do it again, which is the sort of most simplistic answer. But I think it's more importantly, it just gives us a time to focus on this particular historical event, which I think is really important. And it's not in the sense of the Holocaust or the the the, the Olympics of suffering that the Holocaust is is, you know, somehow better, worse, whatever, than other genocides. Um but it gives us a chance to um reflect on, you know, what happened and all the different complex complex ways in which different groups interacted in the Holocaust. Um, Every year, you know, having Holocaust Remembrance Day gives people interested in this topic a focus to reflect on, which I think which I think is important. Um, It'd be nice if we had, you know, more Remembrance Days for the genocides as well. Um, But, you know, this is an important one. And, you know, yeah, I think I think that's that's the, the, the easy answer is that, you know, it it's something for us to focus on. Um, to think about this particular event. Especially on this day. So I find it very difficult because people's hyper-focus, which is correct, it's true, it's correct. The Holocaust was horrific, but also at the same time, so many other people died. And I always try to make it known 
that on this day we commemorate everyone, especially when it comes down to the 27th of January, which is the liberation of Auschwitz. And Auschwitz wasn't just predominantly, even though we have nearly a million Jews that are exterminated in it itself, we also have uh, 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war. And we're talking about Auschwitz specifically, by the way. So if anybody wants to pick on my on my statistical numbers, you can jog on. So we're talking about 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war. You're talking about 23,000 Roma and Sinti. You're talking about uh, Rush, normal Russians. You're talking about French, uh, Czechs, Poles. The list is far longer than my arm. It was 80 uh, pink triangles, so homosexuals involved in that too. Jehovah's Witnesses, the list is so, so extensive. And like you just mentioned, you said this hierarchy, and it really goddamn winds me up where everyone says, oh, well, this person suffered more. Everyone suffered yeah, everyone suffered. I mean, you're you're if if the Nazis kill you, you're equally dead. You know, depending on regardless of, of where you're from. And 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 I think I think it's 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 important to point out the sort of larger big tent approach, if you will, to the Holocaust. Um, that that this particular day commemorates, right? Because we also have Yom HaShoah, which is a very spe- much more specific, I think, and narrowly limited to. The suffering of Jews, which is totally fine, um, you know, I tend to view, you know, in in my work, I've started to use the phrase the Nazi genocidal project, of which, the Holocaust, if we're defining it more narrowly as targeting Jews, is one is one aspect. But of course, there's, you know, Poles go in for different treatment than other Slavs based on a, a Nazi sort of racial worldview. Same thing with Roma and, and Sinti. Um, with LGBT people, um, arguably Slavs in general, and in the Soviet Union, because the Nazis were planning on murdering between 30 and 40 million of them, right? So mm. had had the Nazis sort of won um, or been successful, and then say the war went on for, you know, 20 years or whatnot, we might be talking more about the fact that they starved to death 30 to 40 million Soviets, right? So there's a, yeah. you know, there there is a way of looking at the Holocaust as um, a Nazi genocidal project in which the Jews received the most attention and received sort of the, were the, the, the number one priority perhaps for the Nazis. Um, but there were lots of other people who, who also were victimized um, and suffered under the Nazis. So, you know, it's, I tend to view the Holocaust, the word Holocaust, when I talk about Holocaust history, for example, um, that's a for me that's a a more inclusive term and if i want to talk about um jewish suffering and the attempt of the nazis to exterminate jews i use shoah because that's a term that sort of is much more limited to that particular aspect just like you know if you're talking about the uh the sinti roma you have poyamos which is Hmm. the term that they use for um the nazi attempt to the the genocide of, of the sinti roma so a little maybe this is boring, but you know, there's a little nomenclature goes a long way in sort of understanding, you know, what these things are and and why we have International Holocaust Remembrance Day on the liberation of Auschwitz and not concurrent with with Yom HaShoah or with you know sort of other other events. It's very interesting. I actually really like that terminology, and I'm going to use that. It's a genocidal, uh, the Nazi genocidal project. Yeah. 
I like that. I'm going to use that. That is actually a very clever way of looking at it. And I'm so glad that you and I are on the same wavelength when it comes down to this, because there have been other historians that yell at me and I say, but, you know, we need to remember everyone. You know, we can't just concentrate on one specific because this is it. This whole hierarchy really winds me up. And I just get so frustrated after time and time again, trying to say, look, everyone deserves a headstone. Everyone deserves a memorial. There's no there's no room for fighting. Everyone suffered. I mean, it's it's I think it's one thing to compare because I think I think comparison is frankly a part of history doing the doing of history is in many ways comparative, no matter what your topic is, because you're always thinking about, well, how is this similar or different to something else? Um, and certainly different groups did not experience the Nazi, the Nazi genocidal project in the same way. Yeah. Or to the same extent, perhaps. Um and and certainly they were dealt with differently, um, but when it comes to sort of the the human suffering level of it, um, that's the part where I sort of say, look, you know, it, it if 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 you are shot in a pit by the Nazis because you're Jewish or because you're partisan or considered to be a partisan or because you're Roma, you know, at the individual human level, you know the if the, the suffering level, if you want to use that kind of terminology is, is the same um, though the policies are different. Right. I mean, and of course even gender, right. I mean like women, Jewish women, non-Jewish women in camps, for example, experienced that, that oppression, that, that victimization differently than men did. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't elevate either men's or women's experiences as sort of better or worse, um, which I guess is the point that I'm making. Um, wh- while have, we, you know, and, and this is the area that I think in, in Holocaust historiography, there are, there was, there were some, particularly in, in past years, I think less so nowadays, but you know, who, it, it, this is tied in with this idea of the Holocaust as a unique event um, that is sort of inexplicable. Um, and so Edith Wiesel was was a proponent of this in some ways. And, you know, it, at some level, I would say, yes, the Holocaust is a unique event, just like every historical event is unique. I mean, they're, they're all everything is different. Um, the idea that, that it's sort of beyond understanding is not a super helpful one, because then what are we doing? Like, why are we trying? Why are we trying to understand it? Um, so I think that's. That's that's part of where this idea of this sort of competitive hierarchy of, of suffering, um, we can we can we can say at the same time that you know, with the exception of Roma, because I think the Roma, the Roma is the other non-Jewish group whose whose victimization and, and actual genocide most closely approximates that of the Jews, and it's almost it's almost identical in in many many ways. Um, you know, yes, we can say, you know, the Jews received the brunt of the Nazi attention. Um, it's when you make the argument that somehow, I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not articulating this well, but the, the, there's a, there's a worse um, or a better, you know, that, that, that to me becomes a little less, um, a little less helpful. Right. Uh, and I think part of it has to do with the terminology, right. That we're being very general in those kinds of words. If we're very specific, we can say, look, you know, Jews suffered, Poles suffered, but Poles had more options than Jews did. So they didn't suffer as as badly in that sense, right? They were not targeted in the same way. They had more options 
both in camps and outside of camps. It doesn't make, you know, what they went through any better or worse than anybody else's. It's just different. I think so difference is fine. I'm I'm going to jump in on this. Yeah, go ahead. Where it's the better chance of survival. Poles for the, let's use this as an example. Poles had a better chance of survival fact. Complete yeah. total utter fact. When it comes down to the concentration camp system, so when I explain Auschwitz to people, and people, again, this is another misconception. Everybody believes that everybody that went into Auschwitz got gassed and murdered, and, and that was it. That's the end. So when I try to explain it, I tell people there's two forms of extermination in Auschwitz. There is uh, direct, which is self-explanatory. You go into the gas chamber, you're dead. and There's no selection process. There's nothing. You, you're just You're gone. Then you have the indirect extermination process, which is much slower, but also gives you a better chance of survival, is obviously disease, work, and everything else. And we can see that people did survive, especially looking from my research on the first transport, 40% of 728 people survived, 40%. That is a high number of people. Don't get me wrong, that's not how all the transports were, but there are some that completely were wiped out for various reasons and whatnot and whatnot. But at the end of the day, Poles had a chance to survive. Uh, the Germans who were put into the camp had a chance to survive. Uh, within the hierarchy, like you said, Roman Sinti, very similar experience. They didn't have that chance. They had direct extermination. You had, uh, w w my mind is going, Soviet prisoners of war. At the beginning, they suffered direct extermination, which then kind of evened out a little bit. I'm not trying to put down their suffering at all, but it evened out a little bit where they had a slightly better chance of survival. Like you said, it's it's all to do with experience. Everybody suffered, but it's all to do with experience at the end. Well, I mean, and I think, you know, the as historians, right, what I do is I so I just simply turn that back and say, what's what's the what's the goal? What are we, why are we asking the question? Um, you know, if if the if we're trying to sort of elevate one suffering over another, that's not super useful as an historian. Um mm -hmm to me you know but if if we're trying to compare and understand you know how different people different groups of people experience this event how they navigated the circumstances in which they found themselves now we're doing historical work right now we're now we're looking at okay you know how is how was the experience of a gay man marked as such in Auschwitz because many didn't come in marked as as gay men anyway but it's fundamentally yeah. different if you marked as a gay man in auschwitz than if you weren't and so if we're, if we're asking a question you know how did that person experience auschwitz how did they navigate um you know the the in, it, environment in which they found themselves that i think that's a, an entirely worthy um you know worthy endeavor and if we're asking if we're saying oh you know the Holocaust experience was worse for gay men than it was for Roma or whatever. Then that's becomes, I think less a less useful sort of historical endeavor um, because it seems to be again, engaging in this Olympics of suffering, um, which I think is, is not usually helpful um, because it's suffering in, in the Holocaust is not a sort of zero sum affair. You know, if, if one group suffered, it doesn't take away from uh, the fact that another one did. Um, you know, there's uh, unfortunately with the Nazis, you know, there's plenty of suffering to go around, um, you know, and you don't need to sort of sort of do that. But, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 what I have. To, that, that's why I think the the Olympics of suffering is not a super useful game to play.
I wanted to actually do my PhD after I did my master's on the first transport because I find survival so interesting. And I, people who usually say, yeah, yeah, well, we all know why, you know, luck was involved or, for example, uh, to do with the earlier transports, people knew how the camp worked. And there's all these typical sort of boxes you've got to tick to be able to survive. But I love the whole idea of what really, truly made people survive religion. So, for example, someone turning to God or someone turning away from God or friendships, for example, from the same town, the same prison that you're in. And all of these sorts of very intricate little details that we seem to sometimes really forget. I really wanted to work on doing something like taking all the first transports, specifically focusing on Auschwitz itself, taking, for example, the first women that arrived to Auschwitz, compare that to the first men. How did their experience differ? What about the first Jewish transport of men? What about the first Jewish transport of women? Well, obviously, we know the first Jewish transport of men was was thrown straight into the gas chamber, so that doesn't really count. But, you know, uh, for example, maybe the the first transport from France. That's a complete, they're going to have a completely different experience than the first transport from, let's say, Benjin yeah. in the ghetto. You know, completely two different sides of, of, of a coin. And I just thought it'd be really, so I don't know, somebody might steal my, my idea for a PhD there, but it is really fascinating to look at how the survival truly was and how many how many people survived why did they survive did they die post-war did they die from i don't know something like the bombings that happened in why well, my brain died in uh lubetsk for example the lubetsk disaster it's endless i think this research could just keep going forever and just never stop well i mean and this is something that i mean what that's begging for is a social network analysis basically of you know tracking these people's movements through the system you know which is something that i did with the with the nofska perpetrators where i basically i basically tracked all of them and realized that some of them like literally knew each other and that like large groups of them grew up within 70 kilometers of each other in um in silesia and in the banat which is a an area of what is now sort of hungary and serbia etc but you know and actually, some of my colleagues in this in this geographies program, geographies of the Holocaust group, did this with some uh, Italian um, Jews sent to Auschwitz, and they realized there was this weird cohort that sort of kept getting transferred together from camp to camp. Um, you know, based on for some of them, it was based on what their job was before the war. You know, like stonemasons get sent to do stonework in various places, and they, these people that don't know each other have no, no connection whatsoever except for this one basic thing or or women get sent to a certain place to do sort of tasks that the Nazis have have identified for women. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like with the first transports, it all it all hangs on how much information, you know, about all the people. But tracking them through the system would be really interesting of sort of seeing, you know, how do they how do they end up going places? Because, of, of course, there's there's an internal logic sometimes with what the Nazis are doing. And sometimes it's complete luck. You know, like if, if you arrive at a, at a transport in Auschwitz and they don't need any workers, then you all go to the gas chambers if you're Jews. Um, and if you arrive in the trans in, in there and they just, they need a bunch of people or they need your particular area or the area that you say, you know how to work in, then you have a chance. So it's really, I mean, the, the other example to get back in some ways to both what you're talking about and the the sort of the rhetoric about um about the holocaust you know that people often make the argument that it it goes it goes 
to the extreme in both directions, right? Um, that Poles were sort of complicit in the Holocaust, right? Um, and so there's on the far end of the spectrum, there's that, you know, Poles were just as bad as the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera, which is which is not true. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have sort of, oh, the 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 Poles had nothing to do with the Holocaust, right? Um, that they were all fighting the Nazis and they were all in the home army and this kind of stuff. And, you know, the truth of the matter, which is the complexity piece that I keep hitting on, is that that it's it's more it's more difficult than that. Um, you know, yes, it was if you were a Jew that escaped from a concentration camp in in Poland or you escaped from a ghetto or something, it was difficult to survive on the outside because the local population tended to be less hospitable to you. However, of all every Jew that survived the Holocaust has at least one in Poland has at least one or two stories of Polish people that helped them. Right. So, I mean, it's, this is the complexity that I'm interested in as an historian, right? It's not in sort of exactly assigning blame or merit. It's just looking at how, how do these things actually work? You know, Poland has, I think has the most righteous among the nations from Yad Vashem, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and part of that is, you know, numbers that that's where the most of the Jews were, but, you know, it's complex. Right. And so looking at, at what individuals are doing and how they're experienced and the choices that they're making, I think is important um, rather than trying to sort of rank order things. I mean, we've been talking a little bit, hopefully people are enjoying this conversation. I I do, I do want to touch on looking Mm. a little bit about liberations. I mean, obviously Mm. working on Auschwitz for me is easy. Uh, Some of the other concentration camps uh, I've, I don't know, I was going to say death camps there, but it's actually concentration camps because death camps didn't exist at this stage. It'd be interesting to talk about that because for you, for the camp that you work on, liberation wasn't in 1945, which was for the majority of camps. It was already in 1944. I know you're going to come and talk to us a bit about your book on the subject, but can you just give us a little brief overview of looking at what liberation or if even there was a liberation would have looked like? Yeah, so um so Yunovska I mean Yunovska is a really, really interesting place. Um it's a place where as perhaps as many as eighty thousand Jews are murdered, which puts it again not to hierarchy in terms of suffering, but in terms of numbers, it puts it above Maidanic and it puts it way above Dachau, Bergen Belsen, Buchenwald, all the German camps. But regardless, um what's re- one of the things that's really interesting about it is there's an uprising. Um, really two uprisings that take place simultaneously in November 1943, uh, where the Jews who are part of the sort of the Sonderkommando 1005, which is the the group of, of Jews that are forced to unearth and burn bodies. There's a special, there's a site about a mile or two away from the camp where they're at. They, they rise up, kill several SS men, and a, a group of them escape. And likewise, in the camp itself, there's an uprising um, where they... You know, they they rise up, they burn parts of the camp, they kill a couple guards, um, and and some people escape. And the reason I mentioned this is it basically after that, uh, the SS kills most of the population in the camp. Um, and this is this is along with and in the same time frame as, you know, the results of the Sobibor um uprising, Treblinka uprising, um Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, where the Nazis have decided that, that it's too dangerous to keep Jews around anyway. So you know, the Nazca camp is it's kind of a a rump camp by 
the beginning of 1944. Um, there are still prisoners. Um, Jews that are caught hiding in the city are sent there. Um, there are some non-Jews that are there sort of for prison sentences and things like that. Um, so there's a small population, but it's it's not the population that was there. And then, of course, in July 1944 is when the Soviets come through Lviv. So Lviv is liberated in July of 1944. Um, so the camp is liberated in July 1944, but there's nobody in it because the the SS, the last commandant, a guy named Friedrich Vartsak, has taken the remaining prisoners, the remaining Jews, as well as the SS guards, and they've evacuated to the West. Um, and it's they go on a journey through Poland, um, through um, Grybov and some other places. Um, and what what he what he does, which is just it, it's crazy, is he creates Vartsak, the former the last commandant, uh, creates this thing called the Baustab Venus, uh, or or construction staff Venus, which is purportedly a a labor group who is designed to uh, or, or their, their mission is to build fortifications, military fortifications to prevent the Soviets. But it's, it's fake. He, he just made it up um, so that he and the SS guards would have something to do. So they're, they're they were supposed to be guarding these prisoners, <laughs> the last prisoners of the camp and, and supervising them and building all of these fortifications, which they never built. They never did. Um, basically, they just sort of moved from place to place and sat around. Um, but that way, the SS couldn't task <laughs> task Vartsak and his men to actually go to the front and fight. And so Simon Wiesenthal was one of the prisoners in this group. And his job was wherever they stopped someplace, he would paint the new sign for, you know, this is the headquarters of, of Baustab Venus. So, you know, they are moving towards the West. And then, you know, eventually the group breaks up. And some of them end up in Plajov. Um, and then as Plajov is liberated or is, is, is evacuated, they end up they end up farther, farther west in um in the German camps. And so, you know, this is just one one camp sort of experience. Um, but you know, as you know, with, with Auschwitz, you know, which was, was a much more systematic process, but eastern camps are evacuated and their prisoners are sent uh, into Germany, which is where you end up with um, the scenes that Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
allied liberators from the United States and um, and UK end up liberating, right? Um, and so the conditions, these horrible conditions, are in these German camps and Bergen-Belsen, um, Dachau, Buchenwald, are generally the result of this massive influx of prisoners from the east, you know, from say summer '44 to to liberation. It's it's crazy. In Auschwitz, they start to deport people as of August of 1944, when literally months earlier they were doing the mass gassings of Jews from Hungary. It is just mind blowing to see how, in a matter of months, they've changed from mass extermination to, oh, let's kind of slow down the process, get rid of the prisoners we don't need. And like you said, some of those prisoners, like, for example, you said they went to Poishov, then Poishov to another camp. They'd be moving camps. Some of these prisoners ended up in, what, five, six, seven different concentration, even concentration subcamps. And it's just crazy to, especially in the final days of the war, where they would just sit around and do nothing. The prisoners who ended up in Auschwitz that ended up being evacuated in, for example, the death marches in January of 1944, they end up marching to their place and starting concentration camp life anew in the early days. And then anybody who's being transported in the later days, they just, they're just sitting around. They're sitting around waiting to be moved to another camp, to be moved to another camp, to be moved to another camp. And not, I don't want to say this to sound... Uh, the way it does, but the people who got liberated from Auschwitz were the lucky ones. They didn't have to go through forced marches. Right. They didn't have to go through freezing cold conditions. So people who seem to think about forced marches in January, Jesus Christ, people, you're looking at minus 30, minus 30 in snow, and these people are wearing barely anything, minimum. Yeah. Thousands of people die along, and they're walking. They're walking through the whole. And they're not in good shape to start with. I mean, they're in. They're in. You know, you would be surprised they could walk. You know, down the street in in the conditions that they're they are. I mean, one of the things that to go to go along with what you just said, you know, that I, I like to highlight is that as much as the Holocaust is a history of confinement, right, of being locked in a ghetto in a camp, etc., it's also a history of movement. Yeah, I mean, people are moving all over the place, um, and these movements are, you know, are connected to the war itself, right? So there's train issues. Um, whether or not you get to ride in a train, you know, is sometimes dependent on what what the military situation is. And again, getting back to that comment at the very beginning, you know, it's it's that's part of the luck, right? Is in this case, if you get to if you get to evacuate from Auschwitz at least partially in a train that is far superior to having to walk you know even and and much of the force marches as you know from Auschwitz are to train stations yeah but still I mean that's again it, as you as you point out I mean it, it's one thing if you or I were to walk from Auschwitz to a train station um, but these people are in you know horrendous condition already physically um and now you're asking them to to sort of exert themselves, you know, with without proper clothing, um, in ridiculous. And and as I remember, the 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 winter of forty four forty five was also like a really very cold one, wasn't it? Like yeah, it was exceptionally cold compared to sort of the, the average anyway. So it's just you know all the conditions combined to make these evacuations just you know horrendous. 
is so I do this one thing when I go to Auschwitz in the winter, I need to keep reminding myself that even though I'm cold and I'm wearing however many layers with a hat and gloves and everything else, I need to remind myself I am very lucky. I am still fully clothed and partially warm. These people would have been frostbitten. They would have collapsed and died at the side of the road. But what's also really interesting that I I, I find when these evacuation processes happen, if you're on the territory or the former territory of Poland, where the population, civilian population is Polish, Polish prisoners had a higher chance of escape. And a lot of yeah. these escapes did happen where they managed to, for example, there was one guy who was given a blanket when he left and he ended up wrapping himself in a blanket and kind of just like throwing himself to the side of the road. So the SS men who were escorting them didn't see and he kind of waited for the column to pass, got up and ran to the trees. And so many of these escapes happened and these people who were giving the prisoners shelter were also under risk of being arrested, being shot, because they're giving refuge to a prisoner who in themselves should be dead. It's incredible to see how these dangerous situations have just not stopped. For example, they are still in danger of being shot, murdered, executed. And it's also what the example you just gave is a good example of the the various gradations of help and rescue, right? I mean, the fact that someone gave him a blanket, you know, that's not a it's not a massive rescue. You know, they're not hiding him in their basement, but that act of charity and help could mean the difference between life and death if you're on a death march, right? If you're if you I mean, you know, and then a group of people help, helped him uh, you know, maybe overnight or whatever. I mean, and so it's it's this it's this the cumulative effect of these little acts of of help, right? That you know, it doesn't have to always be, you know, Anne Frank, we're hiding you in, a, in an attic and doing all of the sort of heroic hiding. I mean, like even little things, because there's all kinds of examples, you know, from my work in, in other books where, you know, uh, there's a group of people that escaped from a shooting, Jews, Jews who escaped from a, a shooting in a place called Slonim, um, which is which was eastern Poland. And, you know, they went to a woman's house and the woman was like, I can I can hide you tonight, but I can't keep you after that because it's too dangerous and so they had she had to you know kick them out the next day but you know they they were eternally grateful because that one night after they had fled the shooting site somebody had taken them in and if they hadn't you know so it's it's this is what i mean by complexity and it's 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 one thing that historians do i think it's really annoying but it's good is that we we always are looking we we should always be looking for the complexity rather than saying you know all people did this or all people did that it's more like, well, what is, what is the circum, what are the actual circumstances that people did? And so, it's same thing with the, with the, um, with the marches, you know, where you have everyone along this spectrum from perpetrator to rescuer, um, and everywhere in between. You know, there are those famous photographs from Germany of people from their windows who have sort of taken a picture of the people on the death march walking past their house or whatnot, so that that's that's a certain that person is taking a certain stance on that as well, right? I mean, they're not rescuing anybody, but they're also not, you know, making it worse. That was a very interesting point with the photographs, because that is an act of defiance. You know, you're being able to document something. And we're so grateful to have these kind of photographs. So 
was it last year that they came out with the photographs of the train that they managed to liberate that was being sent to a different concentration camp? Uh, oh, God, my brain has died to which. Is this, this the one, one the was... Americans? Yes. U.S. Army like ran yes. into it. Um... Yes. And the worst thing is, so my former job, the guys were looking for death march photographs specifically from Auschwitz. I was like, well, they don't, Auschwitz ones don't exist. There are none. People weren't brave enough to be able to look out of their window and take a photograph, specifically in Poland, pain of death. Same as, for example, the transports that had to move from prison to, to a concentration camp. On the pain of death, were you not allowed to go near the window? And I'd, I'd be terrified if somebody came into my house and said, I'm sorry, you know, there's going to be a huge parade coming past my house, but you're not allowed to look out the window. You're supposed to stay as far away. And if we see you, we're going to kill you. I mean, I, I would stay far away and, and be terrified myself. I don't know what I would be put into the situation where I'd be surrounded by terror 24-7. And as historians, or some historians, I'm not saying all historians do this, but some historians are very quick to judge these sorts of people and their actions, especially when it comes down to concentration camps and those people who don't work, work on this period and they quickly judge and go, oh, well, I don't know, that person stole bread from that prisoner. That's That's a really horrible thing to do. But they're starving at the same time. These people. Well, and even you know, in that instance, you, even you have people like like Primo Levi, who sort of recognize that like this is a thing that happens, and it's a, it's it's more, it's more the blame for that is more for the Nazis, for creating the circumstances. You know, this is the this is this is Primo Levi's sort of destruction of a man, right? That that what. What the Nazis do is destroy humanity um, in these camps. And so, you know, he and he even says, you know, that, um, you know, what does he say? That, that something like the road to perdition, the roads to perdition are many, but the, the road to salvations are, are few and complex or different or, or, you know, because everybody who survives, he would, I think, argue in some ways has done something that they may not be super proud of. Right. But he doesn't judge them for it because he says this is. This is what the camp does to you, you know, and it's I, I think that's, again, it, it, this idea of blame in the sense of judgment is, is a com is a complex thing for historians, um, because on the one hand, it under it underwrites everything that we're doing in a certain sense. I mean, we, we want to we want to pass judgment and sort of say good, bad or indifferent. But on the other hand, you know, it's not it can be difficult to do that if you're not recognizing the the situation, right? So the tension is always there between the actual situation on the ground that people are living in and having to sort of navigate and more abstract principles of sort of right and wrong, uh, which is why I, I tend to think I look at actions. I sort of say, well, what are, what are people, what do people do? Right. Um, and you know, the the examples that, you know, some people are helping shows that it, it is possible to help, um, you know, and and I, and I think I always say, you know, that it's it's an unfair expectation for people to be heroes. Um, because the the reason that we look up to the arena sendlers and the, you know, the people that hit Anne Frank and everybody else is because they were extraordinary and they took extraordinary risks um, to do extraordinary things, which are, is by definition extraordinary. Um, 
you know, but it's not fair to hold that as sort of the standard for everyone. Um, you know, it's, we would like that to be the case. Um, but also we live in the real world where, you know, people it's, it's, it's an, it's an, it's a, it's a heroic and extraordinary thing to risk your life for someone else, particularly for someone you don't know. Um, you know, which, which doesn't absolve people from sort of being apathetic or not helping, but I think it does mean that we don't necessarily sit in judgment, um, at least from my perspective, for the very reason that like I I would like to think I would behave in a certain way were I in this situation. Um I but agree. I have no way of knowing how I would behave, you know, in, in a in a situation. It's it's the it's the, you know, to to be simplistic perhaps, it's the lifeboat thing. If it's me, my mom, and you in a lifeboat. And there's food for two people. What what's reasonable to expect me to do? I think that I think that's where the complexity comes in again. It is, you know, where where we can judge people. So the example to take it completely out of the Holocaust. The example that I always like to use is with slavery, because a lot of a lot of the sort of neo Confederate types um, in the United <laughs> States are are sort of like, oh well, you know. Yes, slavery was bad, but, you know, at the time it was accepted and and that was just the way things were and people were racist and people had slaves and they accepted it, which, okay, you you could make that argument, except that there were people at the time in the 1800s who said slavery was wrong, who recognized slavery was wrong and said we shouldn't do this and it's immoral, et cetera, et cetera. And so that gives a lie to the rest of it, which is a different thing than sort of saying um, – you know, no one was advocating for transsexual rights in the in the 1800s, right? Which may not be true, by the way, but it's different than sort of saying that there was something that is a sort of new development that we recognize today as important, and people historically didn't perhaps recognize that. Um, there's that that's different than saying. No, actually, there were people at the time making these same value judgments and historical and saying what you're doing is wrong, right? And then that makes me feel more confident in saying, well, you know, I can judge you more. So, like, for example, when I wrote the first book on the German army and the Holocaust, you know, there were there were soldiers who flat out refused to participate and said, we're not going to shoot. We're not going to shoot anybody. Sorry. And they were extraordinary for doing that. Um, but they were also complex because many of those that said, I'm not going to shoot, were totally happy guarding or marching the people to the shooting site, right? So even those people are are complex. But the point is that by the fact that they were able to refuse, it shows that you could refuse if you wanted to, right? Uh, you're 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 going to be disappointing some people who are going to say <laughs> that you know you got a death sentence if you refuse to shoot people. How dare you dispel a myth right there in this in right. this podcast? Yeah. I think we should cut the co- podcast right now because you're starting yeah. to dispel myths, and we don't do that here. Of course we do. I can't help it. <laughs> I I completely agree. So I put myself in the position of, uh, again, coming out of the Holocaust, but sticking to World War II. I put myself in the position of my grandfather, who he was. He was an extraordinary man, a little bit crazy from my perspective, actually really crazy for the things that he did. Could I have put myself in the same position to pick up the arms and go and fight for my country? Could I have risked the lives of my whole family 
the whole city, the civilian population. Could could I have done that? I, I don't know. I'd like to say I'd I'd be this really brave person and I would have saved people. And I don't know. How would I have behaved? And the other point that you made that I wanted to bring up on, which is really interesting, is just add to it, is that we can't just judge the decisions of people in the past. So again, let me bring the Warsaw Uprising into this. At the time, they had the information that they had and they went and made the decisions that they did with the information that they had. From our perspective, we have the whole story. We know what was happening left, right, centre around us. And we can judge to say, oh, oh you know, oh, I would have done it differently. But at that time, they only had this information. So what right do we have to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, the Warsaw Uprising was a genocidal act because they made a stupid decision? Well, hold on. They didn't know that thousands of people were going to get murdered and thousands of people were going to get killed. They didn't know that it wasn't going to be lasting more than five or six days. They thought that the the Russians were much closer than they actually were. And it was something of a necessity. Also, this also stems a little bit, this negativity of the communist period and all their bullshit propaganda that throws at this. But still, at the end of the day, some people believe in all of this. And at the end of the day, they did what they did at the time with the information that they had. That's what I, long-winded answer, long-winded well, comment, I mean, but that's what I want to say. And this again gets to, you know, the the distinction between, you know, judging people based on what is reasonable at the time versus judging things based on, you know, look what we know now. Right. Um, and I think, you know, because I certainly judge, I certainly judge people, you know, I certainly judge. That's normal, you know, right? I judge people and say, you know, in the, in the, in the past and say, that, you know, what, what you did was immoral. Um, but I'm judging it based on, you know, the context of, you know, this what you did was immoral. I mean, like even other people would recognize that at the time, you know, um, but ultimately I'm not a philosopher. Right. And so, you know, I, I would rather sort of describe what happened, um, explain why people made the decisions that they made and and, you know, leave it to others to sort of draw your conclusions about whether you whether you think this was a good person or a bad person because that's when we start to get in i think to the a more difficult area of is someone a good person is someone a bad person i mean am i a good person the things i've done that are good and things that i've done that i'm not happy about um i'm a decent person yeah and so and, and i don't think history is ultimately about judging whether people are good or or bad because that that seems like something that is very sort of simplistic um but obviously when we're studying people we can come to the conclusions that you know i i think this is a pretty bad person um this person has done or 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 better this person has done very bad things um which i'm which i'm far more comfortable saying about lots of different people is well i don't know i don't know why you decided to do what you did but you did it and it's really bad Um, can i add something else to this just to make it a little bit more complex just add a little bit of a twist so how about someone who does bad things with a result that ends up being positive let me give you an example so one of the prisoners i was studying he 
was working in uh, repairing shoes for the SS. The SS man comes in and he, you know what they're like, pedantic. He saw a tiny little floor and he started screaming. He's like, oh my God, you've completely and totally decided to sabotage and pulls his gun out. And the copper decides to beat practically borderline to death this prisoner. In theory, what he does is he saves his life because the SS man would have shot him on the spot. And when he wakes up after this beating, he looks at him, he says, why? And he said, because he would have shot you then and there if I didn't do what I was supposed yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. So let's bring that complexity into this argument because then it just makes it so much. And I love these complexities where you see a bad action that ends up actually being a good action, but is also immoral at the same time. Yeah. I mean, another great example is in, in Rescue. Um, you know, there's a reason why Yad Vashem has certain char- certain requirements for who qualifies as a righteous among the nations, right? And one of them that disqualifies you usually is if you accepted money um, from the person that you were hiding, right? Because there were there were a group of people, you know, rescuers who literally were in it for the money. Yeah, well, and that's... you know would would just would just do it. And when the money ran out, they often killed the Jews they were hiding, right? Um, so complexity, right? Uh, if you if you're one of those people, they have saved your life, assuming they don't kill you. Um, yeah. But they're not doing it for any good reason, except they want to they want to make money off you. Conversely, um, there are, you know, there can be potential rights among nations who are rejected because they took money when it was actually a case of the Jews saying, "Look, we know you're a poor peasant, and here's money that you need to buy extra food." Yeah. For us. And so it's and and that and so it's not an exploitative situation. It's simply, you know, the survival are being hidden, rec- recognizing that the the rescuers need help. Right. And so, you know, that's another example of like, well, what where where do you put these people on the spectrum? You know, there were there are anti-Semites. There were rabid anti-Semites who saved Jews. Um, oh, that's so be- complex. I love that. You, you know, know because they, bringing... they thought, oh. look, I don't like Jews and I don't like them. But they're people, and they shouldn't be killed. You know? Yes, and, and so Zofia Kosak. Oh yeah. my God, she is like one of my favorite examples. Where she was a rabid anti-Semite, and she worked saving Jews, and she wrote protests. And I mean, I managed to. I was able to translate one of these for one of the books I was working on, and it's incredible to see that this woman who was so anti-semitic suddenly she's like but they're people they're human beings you know we shouldn't be oh i just yeah i love that situation there's also one more that i came across not long ago when i was doing uh reading this one guy in auschwitz a polish prisoner political prisoner rabid anti-semite hated jews but he worked in the effect and camera in auschwitz one and he tried to help any of the Jewish prisoners that came, that that arrived to the camp. And he said, look, I did my best. I did my best, but they're not going to survive. They won't. But I did my best to help. Even though I hate them, they're still human beings at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's just, I don't even know where to go with this. It's just mind-blowing. I I find it so fascinating. Well, I mean, it's it's like, you know, um, what's the guy? Uh, Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe, right? Um, there's there's some evidence that he was, we'll say, not a huge fan of Jews, um, but he also saved a person by sacrificing his own life. And there's nothing that we can take away from that. You know, that, that absolutely, the yeah, absolute. So, you know, 
things history is complex people are complex and you know it's it's in examining those complexities i think that we learn more about history about the event but also about people and their involvement i mean that's to me that's i mean this is my bias historically towards micro histories you know towards focusing on you know where the rubber meets the road is my my bias there is that i think that's where you really see interactions and and people making choices um it's not that the the higher level stuff isn't important that ideologies isn't important etc you know but there's something about looking at okay you know people actually have to make choices and that and they're interacting with each other and that tells us something about you know to not get too sort of high and mighty but the the human condition you know if yeah. you will of like you know that's that's where we learn this is is where people are doing things. It's not always where when, when someone's sitting down to write a treatise, you know, a, a, a vague sort of ideological statement about something. Not that that isn't important, um, but it doesn't tell us the same thing as, you know, let's look at how, you know, people survived this camp. Just one more thing before we finish. I want to add on Maximilian Codbert. This very imp- interesting point you brought up, actually. Add one more, even though he doesn't sacrifice his life. He, uh, uh, Tadeusz Piotrkowski, you know that stupid film they bought out in Poland, uh, The Champion, that I despise and hate and have criticised every single thing about that film. That film is about Tadeusz Piotrkowski. And what people don't really know after they've watched this film, stupid film, is that Tadeusz Piotrkowski had a very close relationship with Maximilian Kolbe and he writes about him quite a lot. And there was this one day where Piotrkowski ended up with a load of bread because he'd won some sort of boxing match or, an, or, or one or the other. And he gives some of the bread to Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe puts it under his pillow and then finds out that the prisoner, one of the prisoners had stolen it from him. And Piotrkowski goes, oh, do you want me, do you want me to deal with this situation? And Kolbe goes, well, no, he was also hungry. He's hungry like I'm hungry like you're hungry. He was also hungry. So the next day, he breaks the bread that he gets in half and gives it to the starving prisoner. And I'm sitting there thinking, going, this guy, again, judgment, this guy steals your bread and then you share your own bread with this guy at the end of the day, which you need because you need those calories, you need that food to be able to survive. Yet you're still sharing the bread with that. For me, the logic makes no sense, but when you're a Catholic priest, it it does make sense. That's what you do. You do good for the good for others. Yeah. 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 I mean, and this is the, I mean, this is a whole nother can of, can of worms, but you know, this is one of the biggest indictments that I have of the Catholic church and the Holocaust, you know, the, one Oh of the no, stop that, it. Stop it. I mean, I'm just saying <laughs> one of the, one of the arguments that, that has been made about, um, Pius the 12th, right. Is, um, oh, well, he was trying to, he was worried that the Nazis might destroy, you know, uh, the Vatican or destroy the Catholic Church, you know, and I've always said, well, what, what better thing as the Pope, what better thing than to be killed by the Nazis standing up for, for your religion? I mean, isn't that the most, the most Christian thing possible? Um, you know, and again, the, the, the Catholic Church and the Holocaust is a whole nother incredibly complex topic because there are lots and lots of individuals who used the church, used their resources um, that the church, you know, 
places to stay and convents and everything else to hide Jews and to to just rescue people. Um, at the same time, the church as an institution, not so much, right? So again, yeah. it's 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 complexity, right? It's it's you know, and then you have you know, in Croatia, you have actual Catholic priests leading the you know killing squads and stuff. So I mean, it, it's everything is everything is complex, right? And and you have to look at these individual sort of circumstances to try to begin to understand, you know, what's going on and how these how these disparate ideas and situations are interacting we've got to do that we've got to come and do something on the catholic church because i have so much to say on this subject (laughs) i have so much because i've edited that volume of works and my god there's letters and meetings with the polish ambassador to the vatican where he goes to the pope and he's like dude this is what's happening. They're murdering Jews. This is the evidence. This is with reports coming out of Poland. Here is the evidence. Do something about it. Well, not even Jews. I mean, like when they're killing Catholic priests, Pius XII isn't doing anything. You know, oh. so I mean, you know, well, the Jews can't expect much out of it if he's not going to say something when they're when the Nazis are killing Polish Catholic priests. You know? Should we I mean, should it's... we just give him an award now? The most useless pope of all time. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's it's too bad that Pius XI couldn't stay around longer because he seems like he seemed like the better the better guy because he's the pastoral, you know, man of the people, ministering to the poor kind of guy. And and Pius XII is a is a sort of bureaucrat diplomat, you know, looking looking at the big picture sort of thing. So. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> you know what? Let's let's wrap this up because yeah. you and I could sit and talk about this for absolutely ages. Do remind our listeners the name of your book that they should already be pre-ordering now on Amazon uh, or any other platform. Yeah, it's called it's called Between the Wires: uh, The Noska Camp and the Holocaust in Lviv, and it's coming out from University of Nebraska uh, Press in the in the summer sometime. Perfect. We'll get you back on to talk about that because I think that uh, we'll have an interesting conversation because we both love the city of Lviv. Yes, and I love, love, love the city. There's so much we can talk about it and there's so many things that happen there where you've got from the Soviets to the, to, to oh, no, there's just, there's there's too much. No, I'm going to stop now because I think I could rant onto this forever. So, <laughs> Waitman, you've been great. Thank you so much for coming Thanks on Thanks for having today. me. This is fantastic. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.